his recently released book called Subversive Sabbath, which is a quite provocative title in and of itself, author A.J. Swoboda offers a personal illustration uh, which lends penetrating insight into this topic that we are currently discussing in this new sermon series called Making Sense of the Sabbath. Let me just uh, give you that personal illustration because I think it makes a really good point to begin this morning's message. Walking home from school, the author says, I found grandma, grandpa, and mom standing in the kitchen. I was 10. Their faces shone with a distinct luminescence that I had not witnessed before. Being an only child, I, of course, presumed the exuberance directly related to my arriving home. (laughs) My pride was soon popped. And they showed me a little piece of paper gently laying on top of the newspapers on the dining room table. That little piece of paper changed everything. The story is well known in the family. My grandparents had driven up from California the evening before, stopping at a gas station along the Oregon border. They purchased some snacks, some gas, and as they often did, a lottery ticket. So thinking little of it, they stuffed the ticket in a pocket and continued journeying north. And at their hotel that night, Grandpa stayed up to watch the news. And the lottery numbers were to be announced. And so he turned it on and listened to it. And as the numbers were picked from a whirling globe of balls, the first number matched. And then the second number matched. And then the third number. At this point, he shakes Grandma awake. She wipes her eyes as they watch the fourth fifth, sixth, and seventh numbers match. All seven numbers. Their jaws dropped. Their minds could not ascertain what had just transpired in just a few short seconds. Unimaginable, unthinkable. How much did they win? What does this mean? The host announced the winning amount. That night, Grandma and Grandpa won $4.6 million. After a sleepless night, they drove to our home and placed the lottery ticket on our dining room table. And he says the winnings helped our family in profound ways, as you can well imagine. Debts were paid. Vacations were had. Tuitions were covered. But the story has a dark side. A profound gift that created monetary bliss eventually led to bickering, infighting, and anger in the family. After nearly 50 years of marriage, 50 years, grandma and grandpa's marriage ended. Family members stopped talking to each other and a cold bitterness took over. By the grace of God, he says, healing and reconciliation has begun in our family, yet the fact remains that no one knew how to steward such an enormous gift. And then he continues, this cautionary tale illustrates an important lesson. More critical than a gift is how we handle the gift. We receive something incredible, even unimaginable, yet have no way of knowing what to do with it. Rather than enjoying the gift, we end up fighting over it. The Sabbath is a gift that we don't know how to receive, he says. In a world of doing, going, and producing, 
We have no use for a gift that invites us to stop. But that is the original gift, the gift of rest. And that's where we began our journey last time in this topic, uncovering the truth of what it was originally. So let me just do a little recap of last time. First of all, I'd like you to turn to Genesis 1 again so we can refamiliarize ourselves where it began. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, Scripture says, And God saw all that he had made in this creation account, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts, and by the seventh day God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This word rested, of course, in the Hebrew is the word Shabbat or Sabbath. It's the basic thrust is to sever, put an end to labor, rest. God rested from his labor on the seventh day, and he thereby set that day apart as unique. We talked about that last week. But here's something I recently read, which is an interesting thought that I didn't bring out last week. You might want to tuck it in your notes somewhere. Humanity was made on day six of creation, right? Day seven was that day in which God, Adam, and Eve, and the whole garden ceased from productivity and effort. Striking as it is, Adam and Eve's first full day of existence was a day of rest, not work. Interesting, huh? Another theologian famously said these words. He said that God rested on the seventh day and blessed and sanctified it is the first divine action which man was privileged to witness. Rest. We find that the Sabbath was not only to be respected as God's personal gift, but under Moses then, as we move ahead in the scriptures, it was to be reserved and remembered as God's personal day. So it was a personal command we saw. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn there, and verses 8 through 11. And you know these verses from the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This command to keep the day holy was a new command to Israel we learned last time. God had never demanded it before. And it is significant to note that this command was given specifically to one people group. Who was it? Israel. We find no hint in the Old Testament whatsoever that God expected the Gentile nations to observe the Sabbath as it was commanded to Israel. So it was a personal command. It was a purposeful command we saw. The purposes for setting apart this day were both practical and spiritual. So number one, we saw that it was to rest from our labor. In, in that command, it, God entitles everything under creation to rest. Soil, clothing, machinery, and as we saw last week, even bowling pins need rest, right? God ordained Sabbath rest for our refreshment. Secondly, to remember his deliverance. 
In Deuteronomy 5, we saw that it wasn't only to be a time of rest, but also a time of reflection, remembering that Israel's freedom, their deliverance, was done by God. It wasn't accomplished by themselves. It was God's saving work. God ordained the Sabbath specifically for Israel as a reminder of the fact that their lives rested totally in the hands of God. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, it was given to reveal their unique relationship to God. And we saw that in Exodus 31, that the Sabbath was a sign. It was the sign of God's covenant with Israel under Moses, revealing the unique relationship that they had to God. To ignore that command then for Israel and break the Sabbath was tantamount to severing the relationship. So keeping the Sabbath was like a spiritual thermometer for Israel. The Sabbath was God's gift to God's people. It was given as an act of grace. It allowed much needed time to rest and refocus and remember. And for Israel, it reflected the condition of their spiritual relationship to God. That's what the Sabbath was originally. That's what we looked at last time. But this week, let's look at something different. Because it's important for us to realize that before we can learn to apply it to our own lives which is going to be what next week is all about, that we have to know what it became religiously. What it became religiously. You see, by the time that Jesus hit the scene, the Jewish pendulum had swung completely to the other side. Instead of the Sabbath being desecrated by their total indifference to it, it was destroyed by their meticulous observance of it. In their attempt to avoid breaking the Sabbath, the scribes had devised hundreds of legalisms to codify and classify this term work. Actually, in the Mishnah, a complex verbal rabbinical commentary on the Torah of Moses, 39 clarifications of work were devised with each category having a potential of endless subdivisions. For instance, you'll get a kick out of this. To carry a burden on the Sabbath day meant you were working, so you couldn't do it. Of course, then next, a burden has to be defined. So what, what is a burden that you cannot carry? This is what the scribal law laid down. Quote, a burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put upon a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Not three, two Read enough to make a pen, unquote. I mean, it's so on and goes, on, on and on. Endlessly, they made these laws. So they spent endless hours arguing whether or not a man could lift a lamp and bring it from one place to another on the Sabbath, or whether a woman might wear a brooch or false hair. Even if a man might lift his child on the Sabbath day. These things to them were the essence of religion. To write more than two letters now was work on the Sabbath, right? 
But writing had to be defined. So the definition runs like this, according to their law. Quote, he who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or with his left hand, whether one kind or of two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different languages, you're guilty. Even if he should write two letters from forgetfulness, you're guilty. Whether he has written them with ink or with paint or with anything which makes a permanent mark, also, he that writes on two walls that form an angle or on two tablets of his account book so that those two letters can be read simultaneously, guilty. But if anyone writes with a dark fluid or with fruit juice or in the dust of the road or in sand or in anything which does not make a permanent mark, not guilty. What? If he writes one letter on the ground and one on the wall of a house or on two pages of a book so that they cannot be read at the same time, not guilty. Unquote. That's a typical passage from the scribal law. One section of the Talmud, the major compilation of Jewish tradition, contains 24 chapters listing Sabbath laws. One law specified that the basic limit for travel was 3,000 feet. Okay, got that in your mind now? 3,000 feet from your house. But various exceptions were provided. Here come the loopholes. If you had placed some food within 3,000 feet of your house, you could go there to eat it. And because the food was considered an extension of your house, you could then go another 3,000 feet. So if a rope were placed across an adjourning street or an alley, the building on the other side, as well as the alley in between, could be considered part of your house. Ridiculous. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other, absolutely prohibited. That was work. <laughs> if the Sabbath overtook you as you reached for some food, and the food needed to be dropped before bringing your arm back, lest you be guilty of carrying a burden. You better make sure you have a good handle on what time it is. Because if it's not the Sabbath when you pick it up and it becomes the Sabbath when you get to here, <laughs> drop it. You're guilty. It becomes so ludicrous that according to the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees, when attacked by the Greek army of Antiochus Epiphanes, a group of Jews refused to defend themselves on the Sabbath and a thousand people, men, women, and children, were massacred. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus records in his Antiquities of the Jews that because the Jews would not defend themselves on the Sabbath, that the Roman general Pompey captured Jerusalem. You know how he did it? He figured out that, now, the Jews, there was a provision that said the Jews could defend yourselves in a time of war on the Sabbath. However, what Pompey did was he built the siege ramps and siege mounds against the temple, and he did it on a, on a Sabbath day. 
They couldn't stop them from doing that. It wasn't really war and fighting. They were just building mounds. And so they built those siege mounds every Sabbath day until they got them to the point where they could actually take over the temple and the Jews couldn't do anything about it. On and on it went. Rules were made. Loopholes were discovered. And the Sabbath was murdered. Their attention to the letter of the law completely annihilated the spirit behind the law. What was supposed to be a day of rest became to the Jews more stressful and more tiresome than their regular work week. It was anything but rest. It had become a nightmare. And friends, that nightmare has followed us into the 21st century. Jewish religious laws can even apply to the use today of modern appliances during the Sabbath. Example, ovens cannot be turned on or off. Molly Sparling told me after last week's message that her new refrigerator has a Sabbath mode setting on it. It's certified kosher. Seriously, it's not a joke. It's a feature in many modern home appliances, including ovens and refrigerators, which is intended to allow the appliances to be used, subject to various constraints, by Shabbat observant Jews on the, on the Sabbath and Jewish holidays. This mode usually overrides the usual everyday operation of the electrical appliance and makes the operation of the appliance comply with the rules of halakha, the Jewish law. Activating this mode will turn off interior lights or keep them always on but dimmed. Control panel displays, ice water dispensers, sounds, ice makers, and any advanced features. The compressor, compressor will run on a time defrost. If you open the door and shut the door, the lights won't go on and off. All this stuff to observe the Sabbath today. To reiterate Dr. Swoboda's point made at the beginning of this message, he said, like many of God's gifts, we have struggled to receive this gift. In church life, we bicker over its validity, whether we need to observe it or not. We argue over what day the Sabbath has to be. Is it Saturday or is it Sunday or is it Wednesday or Tuesday? We get trapped in Sabbath rules and wants doctrinal rationale for why we no longer seriously consider it. We start whole denominations over Sabbath disagreements. We fall into the same trap that the Jews did time and time again, not knowing how to enjoy a gift from God. When all is said and done, the worst thing that has happened to the Sabbath is religion. Religion. Religion is hostile to God's gifts. Religion hates free stuff. Religion squanders the good gifts of God by trying to earn them, which is why we will never really, really enjoy a sacred day of rest as long as we think our religion is all about earning. Because the Sabbath proves an awkward fit in our fast-paced, work-drunk, production-obsessed world, doesn't it? We do not know what to do with the Sabbath. 
some who have decided that Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath, which, by the way, cannot be supported anywhere in Scripture. So if you think that, go back to your Bible. They've laid down all kinds of rules on how we're supposed to observe it. Others believe that there should be no engagement in sports and no games whatsoever, no eating out at restaurants as it causes others to work, etc., etc., etc. You can find all these legalisms not in the Jewish community alone, but in the Christian community as well. In fact, I received an email last week uh, from someone after last week's message who shared that their great-grandmother used to get after their great-grandfather for sitting on Sunday afternoons and listening to a baseball game on, an, on the radio because it was a newfangled invention. She felt that it was out of line on the Sabbath to do that. According to others, the day must be spent either at church and in meditation upon God's word, in prayer, visiting the sick, etc., etc., etc. And while many of those things are very, very beneficial and good, even to some extent advisable, nothing in the entire New Testament even remotely alludes to such stringent requirements. In fact... The fourth commandment is the only commandment uh, out of all ten that is not reiterated in the New Testament. Did you know that? Neither Jesus, Paul, nor any other New Testament writer presents the Sabbath commandment as something that Christians are required to regularly observe outside of the Gospels. Because the Gospels are considered as part of the Old Testament way of life until Jesus died and rose again. They were still under that law of Moses, so to speak. Apparently in the writings of the early church, it is difficult to find any reference to the fourth commandment at all. And I know you're probably thinking, what are you teaching us? It's heresy. Are you saying that the commandment is not for us today? Is that what you're saying? Well, let me say this, that the principle behind the commandment has definite relevance for us today. But the commandment itself, as given to Israel, has been superseded by Christ. So in order to understand how the Sabbath applies to Christians, us, it's not simply enough to know what it was originally and what it became religiously, but thirdly, we need to know what it is spiritually. Spiritually. This is where you'll be flipping in your Bibles a little bit here. First off, Jesus clarified the issue for us supremely on six different occasions, okay? Six different occasions, Jesus experienced conflict with the Jews on the subject of the Sabbath in the Gospels. Their ridiculous man-made rules and regulations had no jurisdiction whatsoever over him. And he made no bones about it. Jesus never, never broke the Sabbath as given by God. Okay? But rather broke through the misguided rabbinical traditions, the ones that I just read to you, and scribal laws. And he did it purposely 
to clarify their messed up notions about what the Sabbath was supposed to be. Matthew chapter 12. Turn there in your Bibles, if you would. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Matthew 12, 1 to 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read when da- what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on a Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbaths and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Their jaws must have hit the dirt at this point. Jesus stood before them and he claimed that he was greater than the temple and greater than the Sabbath. That's what Jesus is basically saying. He was claiming to be God in so many words. The one the temple honored and the one the Sabbath served. Let that sink into your mind for a moment. Turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 27. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I, I can't even imagine what they must have been thinking at that point. Christ clarified this here, that the Sabbath was made for man's benefit and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, as the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, Jesus had the right to dictate and to control how it was observed. That's what he was saying. Let's continue on here, chapter 3, verse 1. You know, it's not enough that Jesus said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That ticked him off, right? Then Jesus turns around, he's going to even add to that insult. He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward here. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Now somebody else got mad. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, this is a whole sermon in itself in this text right here. I just want you to think about this text and what just transpired. I can just see the veins bulging out of their foreheads as they flew into a rage. White-knuckled with fists clenched, they plotted their, with their arch enemies, the Herodians. They didn't even get along with the Herodians. But they did today. 
because they were both against Jesus. And the remarkable thing is, as Mark Buchanan observes, is that they actually plot Jesus' murder on the Sabbath day. Mark says, as they see it, healing on the Sabbath is forbidden, but plotting murder is perfectly acceptable. This is legalism at its flagrance. It's most flagrant. The most bizarre lines of reasoning appear completely natural to a legalist. You must never heal on the Sabbath, but you can plot the death of those who do. That's the legalistic mindset. Jesus never annulled the law, especially the one regarding the Sabbath. Rather, he himself fulfilled it. Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, but I came to fulfill it. The Sabbath rest of the Old Testament was just a shadow of Christ himself. By following him and obeying his commandments, we are observing the Sabbath. Get that? Because Christ has come, the shadow of his Sabbath rest is no longer needed, spiritually speaking. When we come to Christ, we rest from our own work towards salvation. Amen? Our works don't save us. He has finished the work. And we are to rest in him. Just before identifying himself as Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus made this very astounding statement. Charlie alluded to it this morning in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I love the way the message interprets Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Listen to these words. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything ill-fitting on you. Anything heavy on you, keep company with me and you will learn how to live freely and lightly. Jesus. I love that translation of that. Because Christ is our rest. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find the requirement of Sabbath observance. Every single day as a Christian is rest in Jesus. Every day, spiritually speaking. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4 in your Bibles. And I'm not going to really unpack this whole text. I may do this at the end of this series, really get into the meat of it. But just for right now, Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10, the writer of Hebrews says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Takes us all the way back to the origin of it in creation. Refocuses it and places it squarely 
into our relationship with Jesus. Because his is a rest of the heart, my friends. A spiritual rest of the soul. A spiritual cessation of our working toward righteousness. Because we can't attain it without Christ. Jesus clarified this issue for us very clearly here. At the cross, he declared it in no uncertain terms. He said, it is finished. Do you know that rest? I hope you do. Do you want that rest? Because it's there for the taking. All you need to do is ask. Lord Jesus, I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. Just please, Lord, be my Lord. Forgive me for my sin. That's all you need to pray. And what will Jesus do? Come to me. Learn it from me. I'll give you rest. Rest like you've never seen or felt before. Jesus clarified the issue. Paul confirmed the issue. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, Paul writes... Galatians 4, verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, that's great, isn't it? This is just the opposite of Matthew chapter 7, where people said to, to God, hey, didn't we cast out demons in your name and we performed all these miracles in your name? And God said, depart from me, you wicked people, because I never knew you right here. But now that you have come to know God rather or to be known by him. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Says you don't have to do that to earn your salvation. Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Verse 16, just before these verses, Paul's writing about the fact that when we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, that he made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our sins, canceling out the certificate of debt that was against us, right? Hostile to us, took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And then verse 16, therefore... So, because of that, this is what you can do now. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to who? Christ. Whether or not we observe or honor certain days above others is clearly a matter of our Christian liberty before God. And no pastor and no teacher and no Christian brother or sister has the right to impose his or her extra biblical views upon anyone else as a matter of law. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, it says in Romans. Amen? Romans 10.4. It all is focused in Jesus. 
The one requirement that I can state with absolute authority as I stand here before you today is that whatever view that we hold regarding Sabbath observance, we hold it for the express purpose of glorifying the Lord. Ultimately, for the follower of Christ, every day and all days are to be reserved and lived for God. Period. Romans chapter 14, verses 4 and following. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for who? For the Lord. Verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Amen. Amen. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord over both the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give account of himself. To who? To God. To God. Jesus clarified the issue. Paul confirmed the issue. Yet somehow, somehow, people confuse the issue. People confuse the issue. From the early days of the church, Christians have reserved Sunday, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, as a unique and special day of worship, fellowship, giving, and personal identification with the Lord. And the reason is rooted in the fact that Jesus was raised on a Sunday. Most of his appearances took place on the first day of the week. And Pentecost, the historical birthing of the church, is said to have taken place on the first day of the week. The New Testament clearly indicates that the church also met on all kinds of days during the week, but specifically on the first day of the week came to be identified as the Lord's Day. You can look it up in Acts chapter 20, 1 Corinthians 16, Revelation chapter 1. John had his vision on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's Day. Sunday, the first day of the week. So I'm saying all of this stuff because that's what we practice today. However, there is no indication that the early church ever, ever considered this day to be the Christian Sabbath. Thereby changing the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. There is absolutely no biblical warrant for making that transition. The distinguishing mark of the Old Testament Sabbath was clearly the concept of rest and the ceasing of work, while the primary focus of the Lord's Day is the worship and celebration of Christ. You get that? How then should we apply the fourth commandment to our own lives? That's what everybody's waiting for. So it took two weeks to get here, and now I'm going to say, come back next week. I'll keep you coming. 
the Lord will. How should we apply this fourth commandment? Well, if we truly have a grasp on what it was originally as God's gift to man and what it became religiously as man's legalistic rituals destroyed it, if we understand what it is spiritually that true rest is fulfilled in Christ as our Lord and Savior, then it follows that we should be able to discern pretty clearly what it should be personally. And that's the main thrust of next week's message. But today, you and I need to know exactly what Jesus is saying to us spiritually and personally. Because that is a truth of paramount importance. And we need to listen to him carefully. He is speaking to every one of your hearts as well as to mine. And this is what he's saying. I believe this is what he's saying. When you stop working, I will do my greatest work. When you stop working, I will do my greatest work in you. So are you working like mad, trying to be good enough to get yourself into heaven or in God's good graces? Forget it. You can't do it. Jesus has already done it. And you just need to trust him. Trust him with your life. Trust him for your salvation. Trust him enough to rest all of the weight that you're carrying on him. You know, the fourth commandment is really a call to intimacy. Intimacy. To a restored intimacy with your heavenly father, your Abba. I once read the word intimacy described this way. Into me see. I love that. Into me see. That really colors it, doesn't it? The author writes, it is a point in my journey where I slow down enough so that the Lord can look into my life and see how I'm doing and how I'm not doing. What needs to be touched, what needs to be done, and what each of us needs to be done with. In other words, it is a call to pray the words of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And then lead me in the everlasting way. But you know what? Intimacy is a two-way street. And this is the beauty of this. Intimacy with God implies more than just the Lord looking into my heart. And investigating my life. It's a lot more than that. It's accepting the gracious invitation that he gives for us to look into his life, into his heart. You and I get to see inside of God's heart. That's true intimacy, amen? The bottom line, folks, is that you and I need to do this. And if you're not practicing Sabbath, you're not going to do that ever. When are you ever going to have the time to look into God's heart if you're not doing this? 
We need to be reminded of just how much he loves us. We need to be reminded of just how much grace he's given us, his patience and his forgiveness that he's poured out upon us. We need to remember, we need to remember just how much it cost him for us to be intimate with him. And he did all the paying. Do you ever give God the chance to look inside of your heart? Do you ever take the time to gaze into his? You see, the Lord is always ready whenever you are, wherever you are. And he's ready right now.